And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the podcast you've all been waiting for, Legacy Story with Adam Solomini. Thank you, thank you. Hey, my name is Adam Salmini, and this is my podcast, Legacy Story. Today I have two separate stories for you, and I promise you they will be very interesting, and quite possibly some stories that you have never heard before. I decided in this episode, which is the ninth episode, that we should take a little bit more of a worldview. So, in this podcast, we are going to talk about a legacy story from the old USSR and a legacy story from Japan. Ultimately, this podcast is meant to rekindle your own legacy story memories and ignite a desire to create more. So let's get into it. I hope that you have had a very fruitful week. I'm glad to be back here with you. And a few weeks ago in my podcast, I talked a little bit about how my family was going through COVID. My wife and I had COVID, not the children, but my wife and I did. And I could tell you that we are feeling a heck of a lot better. Uh, just a, a few things that are nagging, but all in all, we are feeling great. So you might hear a little bit more pep in my voice because I do not feel drained like I was for about three weeks. So here we are going to take an international legacy story journey. Let's start with the old USSR, aka Soviet Union, now known as just Russia, and an interesting thing that happened in the 80s. Hopefully all of you out there know that the USSR and the United States weren't BFFs. As a matter of fact, we were on the brink of nuclear war with them, and we're in the midst of the Cold War. This legacy story is about Stanislav Petrov, a 44-year-old lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces who happened to be working at Serpukov 15 the secret command center outside Moscow, where the Soviet military monitored its early warning satellites over the United States. Stanislav was a few hours into his shift as duty officer there early on the morning of September 26, 1983. Suddenly, the alarms went off. Looking to investigate further, he noticed that five Minutemen intercontinental ballistic missiles had been launched from an American base. Stanislav recalled that for about 15 seconds, everybody was in a state of shock. They were trying to comprehend, okay, what's next? Now, to put this in perspective, this alarm was going off during one of the most tense periods in the Cold War. Just a few weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down a Korean airline commercial flight after it crossed into Soviet airspace, which killed 269 people on board. Everybody on board lost their lives. This included a congressman from Georgia. 
You see, President Reagan essentially declared the Soviet Union an evil empire. That's exactly what he called them, the evil empire. And he had rejected calls for freezing the arms race. His counterpart, the Soviet leader, Yuri Andropov, was obsessed with the potential of an American attack. But let's get back to Stanislav. You see, he was at a pivotal point in the decision-making chain. His superiors reported to the general staff of the Soviet military, which would consult with the leader of the Soviet Union on launching a retaliatory attack. So as he held the phone in one hand and an intercom in the other, trying to absorb all of the information that was coming in with the electronic maps and screens flashing for an excruciating five minutes, Colonel Petrov decided that the launch reports were probably a false alarm. He recalled that it was a gut decision, and he really didn't trust the early warning system and the information that was coming across about the missiles that were launched. As the computer systems in front of him changed their alert from launch to missile strike, and those same computer systems, which were rechecked, came back with the exact same information, Stanislav remained calm, cool, and collected. So the alarm goes off. They sit there in dismay for a minute. It took about five minutes to analyze the information that was coming across via the computers in the early warning system, knowing that time was not on their side. The estimate at the time was that only 25 minutes would elapse between a launch and detonation. He told the BBC that there was no rule about how long they were allowed to think before they reported a strike, but they knew every second of inaction took away valuable time that the Soviet Union's military and political leadership needed to be informed without delay. How they would react. What countermeasures they would take. He said, and I quote, all I had to do was reach for the phone to raise the direct line to our top commanders, but I couldn't move. I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan. Keep in mind that as the tension in this command center reached feverish levels, as many as 200 pairs of eyes were trained on Colonel Petrov. His decision and his legacy story was to report the alert as a system malfunction. This is what he recalled, quote, I had a funny feeling in my gut. I didn't want to make a mistake. I made a decision. And that was it. When people start a war, they don't start it with only five missiles, end quote. Stanislav attributed his judgment to his training and his intuition. He had been told that a nuclear first strike by the United States would be overwhelming and devastating. At first, Stanislav was praised for his calm, but of course, the USSR investigated, and he actually received a reprimand in the aftermath of the investigation. According to reports, the false alarm was set off when a satellite mistook the sun's reflection off the tops of clouds for a missile launch. Yes, that's right. Um, the sun's reflection almost killed everybody. Because the United States had introduced a similar system, the USSR actually rushed its own system into service, and it had these funny little glitches. 
Colonel Petrov knew it was not 100% reliable. Of course, that was not the last time that we were on the brink of nuclear war. That very same year, NATO carried out Able Archer 83, which was a big military exercise simulating a coordinated nuclear attack. Soviet leadership thought that this was a cover for actually starting a real war and placed air units in East Germany and Poland on alert. A humble man, Stanislav Petrov, said he was just at the right place at the right time. But his decisions staved off nuclear catastrophe, and not just any nuclear catastrophe, the type that could potentially end all life on Earth, or most of it. We had a lot of nuclear weapons, and so did they. And I guarantee you, both sides would have unleashed every last one of them. There's actually a docudrama on this very subject. It was created in 2014, and it is titled The Man Who Saved the World. You should check it out. So, that is the legacy story of Stanislav Petrov, the man who kept us from nuclear annihilation. The next legacy story comes to us from Japan. It is the legacy story of Yasuteru Yamada. For a little background, on March 11, 2011, at 2.46, the world's worst nuclear catastrophe after Chernobyl took place in Fukushima, Japan. You see, there was this huge earthquake, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake, which caused a tsunami that in turn damaged the reactors of the nuclear power plant in Fukushima. Yasutero Yamada was 72 years old at the time. He was a retired engineer and was watching the catastrophe unfold on his television set. He was watching the aftermath. He was watching video of the tsunami engulfing the coastal areas of Japan, and he knew he needed to step up. He came up with the idea to gather a group of older civilians, retired engineers, and other retired professionals to replace the younger generation that was working at the nuclear power plant. He said that his logic was, since he was 72 years old, the probability was that he would probably only live about 15 more years. Even if he was exposed to the radiation, the cancer could take up to 20 years to develop in his body. Did I mention he was a cancer survivor? So in his mind, it was less likely for older members of society to suffer from cancer. He worried that the 20 or 30 year olds working in the plant would be getting cancer at 40 or 50 years old and would have to deal with the pain that he had dealt with. Just two days later after the earthquake and tsunami, he had already gathered a group of 250 volunteers. A few days after that, he had 900 volunteers working from home to help the crisis, while the initial 250 volunteers were ready to put on those white suits that you see that are supposed to help you from radiation. Their name was the Skilled Veterans Corps. All of them were over 60 years old. Now, he had all of these volunteers, but Goshi Hosono, the government representative for the nuclear crisis, publicly said that the offer was appreciated, but the crisis was under control. 
Clearly, that was not the case because the crisis got out of hand. And in June, the government entered talks with the skilled Veterans Corps, who didn't stop when they were initially turned down. Finally, that July, Mr. Yamada and five others were able to complete an inspection of the plant and then made their recommendations on actions that needed to be taken to help a dying Fukushima. They launched a program called Returning Home to assist those that had been forcefully displaced from their homes due to the crisis. Now there are 700 active members and over 1,600 support members. But the massive devastation still continues today. About 200 tons of radioactive water needed to be pumped from the reactors, and then the water is then stored in tanks. But officials have said by next year, they will no longer have space to store it. What's crazy is they have said that the only thing that they can do next once they run out of space is to dump the water back into the ocean. Keep in mind that this has been going on for quite some time, and initially all of this contaminated nuclear waste was going into the ocean after the catastrophe. They can actually track isotopes and, and are able to see so much detail in the isotopes that they can tell where the radiation is coming from. And they have found tuna off of California that have been contaminated with Fukushima radiation. Can you imagine what would happen if they continued dumping contaminated water back into the ocean? The legacy of Yasutero Yamada will last for generations. It is this selflessness that almost is the reverse of Japanese culture in that the younger generation needs to be taking care of the older generation. In this case, the older generation put their lives on the line to protect the younger generation. If you've ever been to Japan, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The deep respect that is given to older members of society there is something to behold. His actions have rehabilitated Fukushima and the surrounding area and continues to do so. His legacy story is that of selflessness and a deep desire to do good for the younger generation. Well, that is all for today's episode of Legacy Story. Thank you for listening. Join me next week when we cover even more legacy stories. Whether or not it will have an international feel, I don't know. Make sure you send me your legacy stories, and I might just talk about them. You can send them to LegacyStory at Infinancer.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Plus, don't forget to follow me on social media at YourLegacyStory or on Twitter at TheLegacyStory. And you can also follow me at Infinancer. As you may or may not know, I am a financial coach. If you are interested in changing your trajectory with your personal finances, you can also book a free discovery session with me at infinancer.com. I-N-F-I-N-A-N-C-E-R.com. Until next time, ciao.